1, we finished it, so that would lead you to believe we begin chapter 2, because we go straight through scripture. We saw the archetype of Achatzia. Achatzia was the king that followed Achav, or as we would say, Ahab. And his whole life was basically summed up in one event. The guy fell through the lattice, and he was so injured that he was actually wondering whether he'd ever get up again. So he actually went to inquire of Baalzebub, the Lord of the Flies, for which then Eliyahu, Elijah, and I'll use the terms, because if those of you are familiar with scripts, you know how hard it is to be like Elijah, Elisha, which one's which, right? Because it's like, unless you overemphasize. But the first guy with the J, we're going to call Eliyahu. Eliyahu, because actually that's his full name. Uh, the second guy, Elishima. And that sounds a lot easier, okay? Well, anyways, with that in mind, Eliyahu, the first guy, he actually steps into the situation. Is there no God? Is that because there's no God here that you have to go 50 miles to go find this guy? And you realize his whole life is typified by this one event. Imagine what that one event would be for you. I'd like to think it hasn't happened yet. But what if God's prepping you for it even tonight? That to be some amazing event, not you getting drunk or whatever, leaning on a lattice, falling out of it, because basically you were leaning on something too flimsy to hold you up. And that was the whole story of his life. He went to inquire of, of a false god 50 miles away because he was leaning on something too flimsy to hold him up, and he would never recover. And which, by the way, becomes not only archetypical for him, but becomes archetypical for the whole nation. They got to this point where they were leaning on the tangible, but it was way too flimsy to hold him up. What about your life right now? Before we even get into chapter 2, let's just jump at the jugular. What are you leaning on? When you have a rough day, what's the thing you lean on? How does it hold you up? Isn't it amazing? When I t- we do a lot with addicts. And one of the reasons is I love them because they're honest. They're one of the few people that will actually tell you they're a doofus. And let's just, if we're going to be honest, we are all doofuses. But this is like DA, doofus anonymous. It's part of the fun. That's the beauty in it, is that Jesus loves doofuses, doofi. Anyways, you get the idea. Is that it's amazing when you get to something like that, you've had a really rough day, you go to the bottle. You've had a really good day, you go to the bottle. How does that work? So it's like, wow, it's a really bad day, so I'm going to go punish myself with this thing. I've had a really good day, so I'm going to go not punish myself with the same thing. It's amazing how we can do that. And that becomes the story of this guy, this king. He never recovers. His whole life is summed up in this. He leaned on a flimsy thing and it didn't hold him up and it killed him. Can you imagine that being your story? You know what's amazing is the people you could envy. Now, maybe that's not you. Now, I'm a little older. I'm looking like, tell me a story, Grandpa. I'm a little older than you guys. And I'll say that a lot of the guys that I knew are killing themselves. As I look at these guys who were famous, that in the 90s, people envied. They would have chopped off their arm to be like that are now killing themselves because they have anything to stand for. Everything they leaned on, for a while it held them up, but sooner or later it's going to break. So now we're at the end of Elijah's life. Well, we'll say it this way, the end of his ministry here on earth at the moment. He will show up in the New Testament, you're very aware of that. There's this board meeting with Jesus and Moses and Eliyahu, if you will, the law and the prophets meeting with Jesus, talking about literally his exodus, his departure, it's important to note in 1 Kings chapter 19 that God actually told Eliyahu that he was going to find a replacement. And the reason was Eliyahu had bailed on God. And, his, and he didn't totally bail on God, but basically he got to this place where you should see it coming. Eliyahu got Eliyahu complex. And he just felt like he was the only one. And God's like, I'm, you're not the only one, man. But I, have, I want you to go and... I want you to go and take your replacement. And listen to this verse. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, it says that Eliyahu departed and he found Elishama, the second guy, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Eliyahu passed by and he threw his mantle on him. That was your hiring. Imagine. And by the way, does anyone know what a mantle is? Because we usually have ideas. Yeah, it's basically, by the way, the, the term for what it's worth, uh, adaret. Adaret means literally abundance. So it's like your robe. It's the big thing. It's not like a cool little thing you wear, like a scarf or a ascot or something. It's the big thing that covers you. 
So imagine this guy's plowing, and we don't have to develop too much because we've already been there, but he's plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, very similar, of course. We already are drawn to the idea there's the 12 tribes. And somewhere in it, without any conversation, it isn't like, hey, Elisha, Elisha, by the way, God was talking, and he kind of handed me my P45 and said, you're right. Nothing. He just takes his robe and goes, and puts it over the guy. And the guy's like, okay, well, hold on. Let me say goodbye to my family. And then he, like, kills the animals, makes them a sacrifice, and he goes and follows them. That is, well, for what it's worth, that was about six years ago. Six years later, it's time for him to step up, which means he's had six years of on-the-job training. Was Elishama there when that flimsy guy, Ahazia, sent three bands of 50 soldiers and their commanders to go arrest him, and fire came down and consumed the first two batches? Was he there and saw that? Went, oh. Now, in this particular chapter, it is time to hand over the mantle. Eliyahu is handing it over to Elishama. And Elishama wants power. He wants the power to do it right, if you will. Read it with me, will you please? Second Kings chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Eliyahu into heaven by a whirlwind that Eliyahu went with Elishema from Gilgal. Can you say Gilgal? Gilgal. Now can you say Gilgal? Gilgal. You're like Gal Gadot, Gilgal Gadot, Gilgal, Gilgal. Okay, that's our first place. And I'm going to challenge you to see how, how much of this you remember. Our first place, the first place we start is what? Oh, now, I've already lost you. The first place we started was what? That was so whelming. Okay. Eliyahu says to Elisha, must stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. Would you say Bethel? Okay, what was the first place? What's the second place? Look at you, are getting better already. But Elisha says, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets were at Bethel. They came to Elishama and they said to him, do you know that the Lord will take away your master from you? Over from over you today, and he said, "Yeah, I know. Keep silent." Other shut up. And Yahu said to him, "Elishama, stay here, please, for the Lord has called me on to Yericho. Try Yericho." Okay. Does anyone remember the first place? Nice. How about the second place? Bethel. And our third place, Yericho. Nice. But he said, "As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you." So they went down to Yericho. Doesn't seem like much of a conversation. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Yericho came to Elishama and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? Sound familiar? And he answered, Yeah, I know. Keep silent. Zip it. Then Eliyahu said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to the Yordan. Can you say Yordan? Now we have four places. Impress me. What was the first place? Gilgal. What was the second place? Bethel. Nice. What was the third place? Yericho. And then what was our last place? Jordan or Jordan. Right. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. He's consistent in what you say. So the two of them went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. Now the two of them stood up by the, stood by the Jordan and Elihu took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Eliyahu said to Elishama, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken from you, taken away from you? Elishama says, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, interesting, your spirit, not God's spirit, your spirit. So he said, well, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Eliyahu went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more. So he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Eliyahu that had fallen from him 
and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan, the Yorzan. And he took the mantle of Eliyahu that had fallen from him, struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Eliyahu? And when he had struck the water, also, it was divided this way and that. Or if you have the old King James, that's a fun one, hither and thither. And Elishema crossed over. Now the sons of the prophets who were there from Jericho saw him and said, The spirit of Eliyahu rests on Elishema. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Now look here, here are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or in some valley. And he said, You shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send him. Therefore they sent 50 men. And they searched three days, but they couldn't find him. And when they came back, he had stayed in Yericho. He said to them, Didn't I tell you? Didn't I say to you, Don't go? I told you so. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Please note, the situation of the city is pleasant as my, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground is barren, and that's where we'll get next week. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, God, we want to know you. And Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You, you are the one who was, who is, and who is coming. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that you can show us Today, something that took place nearly 3,000 years ago. And it's just as applicable today as it's ever been. So, Lord, open our hearts and our eyes. And we want, Lord, we want to be like you, even as we sung. So, Lord, have your way. May your scripture burst open and come alive. And may we tonight... Just be right where we need to be with you. May we discover your great love for us and your great call on our lives. And tonight, have your way. Draw us and captivate us in your word and redeem every second. We pray, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me to do through me what only you can do. So, Lord, it's your work now. And I offer myself to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'd say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Now, obviously, what we have here is we have a situation where obviously Elishema really wants something. And what he wants is a double portion of Eliyahu's spirit. And we have to start there. And again, if I say something and it challenges you, then my challenge to you is get in the Scripture and make sure that you're looking objectively at Scripture, that you're not contriving but deriving. In Scripture, God makes very clear there is the specific Spirit of God and there is the Spirit of man. Each person has a Spirit. Now, understand something. I'm not saying Spirit in some weird esoteric way. I'm saying in the simplest sense, that there is a part of you that in its root word means the core of your appetites. The part of you that's driven, that hungers for more than just food. But those things that God has placed within you for companionship, for purpose, for importance, for your raison d'etre, your reason for being. Now there's an argument here on whether Elishema is asking for a double portion of God's Holy Spirit or whether he's actually asking for a double portion of Eliyahu's spirit. Well, clearly in the text, he's asking for a double portion of Eliyahu's spirit. That's clear and evident. Now, does that mean that he's relating that to the Holy Spirit? You can argue that all you want. But I have to make clear something Jesus taught us. According to the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches us that he does not give his Holy Spirit by measure. In other words, you will never get more Holy Spirit than me because God somehow decided to give me more or you more. See, the problem with Scripture is that we somehow try to build our own world and then we try to see how we could fit it in versus the other way around. The Holy Spirit's not mentioned as an it. He's mentioned as a he for good reason. And because the Holy Spirit is a he with feelings who can be grieved and a will and desire for your life, please understand something here. The issue is not how much Holy Spirit you have, but rather how much of you he has. Now, remember David would say after falling with Bathsheba, create in me 
a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David had gotten to a place where his heart had gotten way wonky. And that will happen, by the way, when you, I don't know, adultery and massive sin, and then you have someone killed. I mean, the moment you start diving into those things, of course it's going to mess with you. And what David said is, man, I need my heart and my, the spirit, the very core of my appetites, right again with you. But mine, I dare say, I think Eliyahu might want both. Why wouldn't he want the power of God? It didn't come magically with the mantle. Did you notice it wasn't like the Holy Spirit just came upon him the moment the mantle hit him? Though it could have, but God chose not to. Clearly, by the way, so you know, Elishema, though he seems to get less press, actually does twice as many miracles, actually, than Eliyahu does. So he will actually, we'll see twice of that performed. But dare I say that there are certain people that I look at in Scripture, and I want their spirit too. Not like I want to, to channel Moses through me, for instance. But there's a guy named Caleb. Some of you are familiar with him from the Old Testament. He's 85 years old. 40 years ago, he spied out the, la- the land, the promised land. And 40 years later, he's 85, and he's like, I saw this property, and I want it still. And Joshua is like, well, if you want to go get it. And he doesn't go, well, I tell you what, I'm going to get some of those young kids, and they're going to go get me that land. He's like, oh, just give me, all I'm looking for is permission, man. You give me permission, and I'm going. And, and I'm like, God, give me that kind of spirit. And I go, the moment I start ebbing, and the moment I start cooling, just kill me. I've asked that more than once with the Lord, because I don't want to die less than I started. I want you to see a guy, if the Lord tarries, I want you to see a guy that's like, when does that guy stop? You'll know when the breaths are gone. That's when I'll stop. That's what I want, at least. And I really do believe that's what the Lord has for me. And the reason I say that is, is that this guy is looking for the last six years, he's watched Eliyahu have to walk with the Lord and trust him while his replacement's right next to him, wondering when this guy's going to step up in his place. What would it be like for you? If we look at this text, there are four distinct places that God makes special note. By the way, you're aware of the fact God doesn't have to add words. It isn't like God's like, let's just throw some other words in there so those brainiacs can spend a little extra time going through this. God actually picks specific words for everything. And if he's going to give us specific details, there's a purpose behind them. And he makes clear that every place that they went, he actually documents so we know where they are. And just like when we talk about the Israel trip that's coming, the beauty is to walk through these places and in essence to kind of stand in a place where unfathomable history took place. But the difference is the unfathomable history that took place for the most part is in Scripture and the closest we've ever done to live in it is actually pull ourselves into the text. But not for Elijah. Some of those places have direct history that, I mean, are done during the time he walked. And I'd like to challenge you today that what if we walked out of here today on fuego for Christ? I mean, just where he had all of us, like we sang. We sang it in more than one song with an act of surrender. What if he had all of us? What do you think would happen to the world around us? Well, first of all, what do you think would happen to the world inside of us? And I'd like to say that as we look at this, there's a journey here. There are four distinct places. And I'd like to say that each one of them, in essence, kind of lines us up with something that I really think in your life and in my life, please understand there's nothing in Scripture I would say, well, this is for you, but not for me. This is for me. It just also happens to be for you. That each one of these places will be a place you could stop at and go, this is far enough. And there will be people. Did you notice, by the way, there are people who are God's people that will, in essence, try to actually get you to stay there. Is this good enough? You ever have anyone that actually calls himself a Christian who sits down with you and actually has that intervention look on their face? You're like, uh oh, and they're like, I think you're going a little overboard with this Jesus thing. Imagine if the father sat down with Jesus and went, I think you're really going overboard with this whole hanging on the cross naked for everybody kind of thing and praying for God, you know, for me to forgive them all. That's a little overboard. But the only guy that ever gets to walk on water had to go overboard to do it. And I'd like to say. Jesus is the one thing I can't OD on, and I'm trying. And I'd like to challenge you, prove me wrong. 
there are four distinct stops. And what if in each one of these places, God starts to speak to wherever you're at tonight and wherever I'm at tonight. And he's like, Do you, don't you want to leave this place and go beyond it? Or is this as cool as your, as your walk's going to get? Is this it? This kind of thwarted, almost full of potential, but not really full of ambition? What came to pass, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it was clear that the Lord was about to take up Eliyahu. He was going to take him up in a whirlwind. We're aware of what that is. And Eliyahu went with Elisha and he started at our first place. Do you remember what the first place was? Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a very, very... These are, by the way, these are landmarks for the history of Israel. Landmark one, Gilgal. Gilgal was the first camp when Israel crossed the Jordan. It was a place where God had them do the least logical thing from a military perspective. He actually had all of the men circumcised. Now, forgive me, we're in a mixed company and I recognize that, but just could you imagine anything that would seem more contrary to you being ready for the battle? But understand, God had this program, and this program started with the idea that I want your heart consecrated because the the plans I'm going to give you are going to make no sense unless you're set apart to me. But I don't think it's any form of coincidence that the place that had to be circumcised was obviously the place that is the most sensitive and obviously the place. And and the only reason I'm developing this is it's enormously pertinent. Is the place that, by the way, most people, of course, you would hope would keep extremely private. Now, I watch American football. I used to fight competitively. I don't watch competitive fighting because I don't think it inspires anything good in me. But you can watch guys get hit just about anywhere, and most of the guys would be like, oh, that was a good hit. But there's one particular place where when a guy gets hit, even on the screen, though you've never met him, every guy goes, oh. Because there's, and, and again, I'm not trying to be crude. It's just that sensitive. Because there is a place that is intended to be very cared for and protected. Because, to be honest, blunt force trauma to it or careless exposing of it puts you in enormous danger and it makes you on a crash course with extreme hurt. Is that fair? Do you know that more than twice in comparison, God speaks about the circumcision of the heart than he does the circumcision of any human flesh on the outside? You do know why, right? It's the same thing. It's a sensitive part that when left carelessly exposed, carelessly exposed, puts you on a head-on course collision, collision course with a lot of hurt. What's interesting is there are other people, you watch them and there is some circumstance in some movie or whatever and that circumstance is one of betrayal, or one where you know great heartache takes place. And there are some people, they respond the same way. Because they're like, oh, I've been there, that hurts. That really hurts. But we live in a culture where there are certain areas where they're like, look at, don't you, you can, you can give me this God thing and I'll accept Jesus as Savior. I don't want to go to hell. No person in their right mind would want that but don't you dare tell me that God has a rule over my sexuality. And I'm not even just talking about the homosexual aspect versus the heterosexual aspect. God's got very clear on all of this. Because what's amazing to me is, is that the church has not stood for traditional uh, marriage for well over a half a century. So it's no surprise that we continue to compromise. And the whole point is, it's like, look, it's some guy that's going out there and swinging with a bunch of girls is still sinning, regardless of the fact. And no matter what rules he wants to make up, in the end of it all, Jesus still calls it sin. Let me ask you, do you really want to be full of God's power? Do you really want that kind of spirit ruling you? Well, then you're going to have to surrender the part of you that you think you have a right to, though you call Jesus Lord of everything. And I'm talking to me too, by the way. And already this hurts, doesn't it? And we're only at our first place. Could you imagine Eliyahu, the master to the servant, saying, do you want to just stop here? 
But Elishama knows he is never going to have what he really craves inside if he stays there. Oh, that doesn't mean he's not Elishama. That doesn't mean he's not a prophet. But he doesn't get everything that is in his heart, that God put in his heart. Because somewhere down the line, he drew the line and said, Psh, that's it, Not you can't touch this. Now please hear me. According to the book of 1 John, it tells us there are three things that make up the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And there's one thing I've discovered as we deal with people that are addicted to this, to this aspect. It is the one sin that I know that all three of those ingredients apply. I mean, you could see a drug and you could want it, and that might be the lust of the flesh. It isn't like you look and go, that powder looks so beautiful. But rather, the feeling you think you'll get from it, it's a thing your flesh craves. But you don't get proud over it. You could see something in a store and you would want to steal it and it might be the lust of your eyes. You're like, oh, I want that iPhone, whatever. Although these days, I don't think anyone wants. But anyway, you know, it's like, you know, it's like that you see that thing and you're like, I got to have that. Your eyes want it. But you take it and it isn't like you go, check me out, I'm awesome for it. But this particular thing... It's how you view yourself. It's what your eyes see and want. And it is what your flesh wants as well. You realize all three of those things play into it. And God goes, let's start there. What if, and please understand, God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead of. And for everything that God removes, he has a set, for every desire God has put within you, he has a set menu. But I guarantee you, it is the one menu that will keep you healthy. And it is the one menu, menu, menu that will keep you close to him and you'll never ever have to go man what am I doing is, is it right and we start at Gilgal but Eliyahu knows that this man's going to follow him and Elishama says I am not stopping here and might I say the first place Gilgal is the place of consecration it is the place where my whole heart gets cut open so that the tenderest part of my heart is exposed to God. And I say, all right, Lord, you have permission over the whole of it. And that means you may bring out things that I've, I've hidden, but you wouldn't just show them to flaunt me. That's the enemy's job. You would pull them out to permanently remove them and show your victory over them. You realize how dangerous that could be if we let God actually cut our hearts open like that? We could actually be free. And that's our first place. It's a place of consecration. So first, Gilgal, consecration. So here's the part we call reinforcement. I'll say Gilgal. What would you say? Gilgal. Thank you for the two of you. Let's try that one more time. Gilgal. Thank you, consecration. Let me give you a couple of things. Joshua chapter 4, verse 20, and Joshua 5, verse 9. Check me up on that, by the way. Then we go to our second place. Our second place is the place of Bethel, or we might say Bethel. That comes normally. The reason we say that today is because there's a lot of albums from Bethel. Nonetheless, Bethel is introduced, by the way, in Genesis chapter 28. In chapter 28 of, of Genesis, Jacob had actually had a really rough night. Jacob's been fleeing from his brother. It's interesting, by the way. This is one of those places that flies in the face of the culture we live in. Because in the culture we live in, it's like the end justifies the means. As long as you get it, it's cool. In the end of it all, doesn't you know? then we can kind of rule out how you got it. God had actually promised Jacob something before he was born, his birthright. He had promised that he would actually have the right of the older of the firstborn, even though he wasn't the firstborn. And by the way, that wasn't entirely uncommon. And yet, Jacob went to connive to get it. And in the end, he would get that blessing, but he would do it pretending to be his brother. Dressing like his brother, a hairy man of the woods, if you will, kind of a look like an animal, perfect guy for hunting because the animals would be like, oh, he's one of us. And he's like, oh, and then he would kill you. You know, it's like it was perfect. And Jacob, what we read is he was a man, Yaakov, he was a man of the kitchen. You could put whatever image you want behind that, but you kind of get the idea of the two of them, only one of them is doing a survivalist show and it's probably not the kitchen guy. And he has to dress like his brother, put on his brother's clothes, and apparently his brother had a distinct smell because dad had lost his sight by this point. He's like, yep, you smell like my, smell like my oldest bird. You kind of sound like my kitchen boy. Now, please understand, Jacob actually gets the promise. 
but he never has the opportunity to sit down with his children and tell you how God did it. Because God had a plan for him that would have to be in the realm of the miraculous. And Jacob instead had to tell you how God instead, well, how he connived to get it. And then how do you tell that to your kids and go, but don't do what I did. And now he's running from his brother because his brother's not real happy about it. And now he wants him dead. And I remind you, he's a hunter. And in the middle of all of that, Jacob's on the lamb. And as Yaakov is running, he finds himself in this place and he puts a stone underneath his head for a pillow. And God shows him this vision where heaven and earth are connected like by an escalator and angels coming and going on it. And he goes, oh my goodness, I found the gateway of God. This place where heaven and earth connect? Wow. I had no idea. And the one time when he thinks Every sound is going to be his brother trying to kill him. This is the place. And he goes, you know, we're going to call this place God's house. It was the place of communion. A place where God says, you know, we actually can meet even in the midst of this. But you're going to have to be a new person, Jacob. Interesting. Because the term that he uses, the house of God, of course, is going to be a term we build on. Oddly enough, it's the same place that once Solomon... His empire is then divided and the northern kingdom of ten tribes is given to his commander, Jeroboam. The Jeroboam knows that those people will want to go down to Jerusalem because that's where they interface, where they commune with God. So you know what he does? He puts two gold cows up and one of them in Bethel of all places. The place where Jacob actually went, this is where heaven and earth meet. Now a guy stuck an idol there in its place. What a rotten communion. Versus what God intended. And here it is, in our second place. God wants to plug us in at his house. In the first place, God wants to consecrate us. He wants to consecrate, open our hearts so that we will give him permission to be Lord of everything. To roll back the flesh and let the sensitive part be touched by God. And then we get to the second place and it goes from a place of consecration to a place of communion. A place now where you're like, you know what, God? Put me in with other people. And you realize this is something God has been challenging every one of us in, in a culture that says what we need to do instead is be isolated and sit at home and just listen to a message or put on some worship music and we're going to call it church. But understand one of the purposes God intended us all to be together is so that we could actually be available so that God could use us to bless each other. Do you know what it says? Let us do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Do you know that? Do you know that we're supposed to actually show preference to each other? Now, that doesn't mean we don't care for the world. I have to say that because some people would be offended. But you know, in the end of it all, when it came down to it, your family gets precedence. And God wants to show that we are actually family. And we should actually have precedence. We could get to the point where I find people that's like, you ever seen a hate the church church? Like, we're not going to call ourselves Christians. We're going to call ourselves something else. And we're going to be like new vintage. Put that together. What? You know, what's that? It's grape juice? You know, and, you know, and we're just, you know, it's like, oh, we're not going to be like any of those other churches. And we're not going to use any of those terms. And we're not going to be anything because all those people are, are apostate. And, you know, and that's what Joseph Smith said. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses said. It's amazing how many people pull that out. And then they just start and they launch into the unbelievable madness. And, and somewhere in all of that, God goes, you know, actually, you should not forsake the assembling together of believers. But it isn't just so that we could sit here and do this. That time of prayer, by the way, is supposed to be one of those things to instigate times where we wait on the Lord and we're like, Lord, is there anything you have for me for the people around me right now? Let's face it, this is the one place where if you're like, I believe the Lord may have a prophecy or I believe that the Lord has a word for you, they're already seeking the Lord. They're going to be able to actually try to weigh it out with Scripture. Isn't that a beautiful thing? I'm like, no, 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 we're just going to love everybody else but hate our own family. But God wants to adopt you into my family. Think that one through. Why would I want to be part of that? And God wants you connected. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Psalm 92.13 says, He who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. If you read the first Psalm, you'll realize the whole part about not walking or standing or sitting, it's progress or digression, you know, that of the sinful, the scornful, the mocker. You realize as that happens, he goes, but rather he meditates on the word 
day and night. And he's like a tree planted by rivers of water. And God's like, I want you planted, man. Not shopping. I want you in a place where you're challenged. And so when I use you, you go, wow, this was actually really, really cool. But I remind you, you could just stay there. We've got four stops and we're halfway there now. We started our place of consecration because that's, man, the moment I said yes to Jesus, God's like, I want all of your heart. And you're like, sure. And he goes, well, you're not going to give it to me, so it's only going to come in pieces. And it does. And every time it breaks, he gets another piece. I'd wish he'd just take it all. But unfortunately, there are times where I've done great things to shatter my own heart because I'm a doofus. And God's like, you think. You think it's totally open, but you've now, I mean, you've been hurt, so now you're kind of protecting, but you're protecting it from me. Is that really right? I've not done anything to you. Nothing bad. Because now go from that. But now that you let me set apart your heart, can I set you in a family? Because I want to use you. So you're not just a consumer. You're like, oh, God, I want a double portion. God goes, well, then you need to plug in because what are you going to do with all of that if you're just a lone drifter somewhere? What are you going to do with it anyways then? Why do you think I empower you? It's to bless my family and to evangelize the world. But I challenge you, look at all the list of spiritual gifts and tell me how many of them apply to the church. Now now that we get to the house of God, guess what we get introduced to? A group of people that are going to down-talk you. I just want to warn you, you're going to be on your own now. Oddly enough, there you are in fellowship, and they're like, oh, your master is going to leave you. Why don't you just stay here with us? Just hang out with us. We'll be, you know, we'll be the church of the halfway. Still pretty good. Might I say maybe the first church was like Sardis? You know, where it's Sardis, where it's like the church that was the dead church. We get to the second church and you realize it's like the lukewarm church. Yeah, we'll let God have our heart, but really not, because in the end of it all, I'm going to take it back. Because, you know, I don't know about this church thing. You know, it's like funny that the, how proud and pompous we must be to say, well, I don't want to be part of a church because there's too many hypocrites as if we're not one. I don't want to be in church because that's like for messed up people as if we're not one. It's like going, I don't want to go to the hospital because that's where sick people go, but you're sick. You're like, well, I met this doctor and he was sick too. Yeah, doctors get sick too. You know why? Because they're still human. Well, I heard about this pastor, and funny, did you ever meet him? No, but I heard about him. Oh, okay, so that's where you're going to go. But are you going to obey Jesus or not? Can we just put it simply? He's like, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because I really, in other words, God's like, I really want to pour forth. And I want to pour forth to this place. Do you know what it's like to serve in the overflow? But there's no depletion like you just find yourself doing it and then you're like this is so cool because that's what he has for every one of us so Gilgal was the place of consecration and then Bethel was the place of communion not just with God but with God but also with each other so I'm not going to leave you so they go to our third place our third place Yericho. Yericho, we're, we're familiar with because it was the place in Numbers 22 where Israel camped opposite of when Balachim actually went after him. Remember him? The guy that was hired by Balach, the guy that gets rebuked by a donkey, the first talking donkey before Shrek. You know, and he's like, you know, and, and the most amazing part to me is when the donkey starts telling him, you know, how long have I worked for you? And have I ever done anything like this? Don't you find this a little weird? And he starts to argue with the donkey. You know, it's not like it was weird enough that donkey's like not going his way, but he's like, you stupid donkey. And you imagine it's like, I'm the stupid donkey. You're arguing with a, you're not even seeing this, are you? You get so caught up. But what's interesting is 10 chapters later in Numbers 32, 
two and a half of those 12 tribes are sitting opposite of Jericho, and they're like, you know what? This Jordan area, today what would be called Jordan, this is good. This is good property. Could we just have this? I mean, this is good. I mean, I know God promised the land over there, but this is close. I mean, I could see it from here. I could cross that river, get a postcard, get the shirt, come on back, get some good falafel, come on back to my place. It's a little safer here. Look how sad. But of course, the one thing we know Yeracho from is God's utterly insane idea of taking down a wall that's thicker than it is from the wall to this wall. I mean, we're looking at something that's like, imagine being surrounded by, in, in our particular mindset, being surrounded by a whole block of shards. And God going, this is how we take it down. My first thought is C4. No, God's like, okay, you're going to walk around and you're going to be quiet for a week, which, by the way, I think is a fantastic miracle. And I understand why God would do that, because the first guy that starts talking, you know what he's going to say, Right? This is stupid. We're going to die. That's what they're going to... And God's like, I don't want any of that. We don't need any of that in the camp. You're going to walk silently and you're going to trust me. And then you're going to walk, you're going to march around on that seventh day seven times. And you ever wondered like what the, the people in Jericho were thinking? They're kind of like, do we shoot them? I don't know. They're not doing it. They're, they're walking. They're leaving. What was that? You know, I mean, talk about the mind game. But but in all of that, it's like on the seventh day, you're going to march around in seven times. You're going to blow your trumpets and then you're just going to scream. And then the wall falls down. Don't worry. It'll happen. And scientists are like, well, you know about natural resonance and all that. You know, actually, in the end of it all, obedience. People are like, how could David take down Goliath with a stone? Are you kidding? David says, I come after you in the name of the living God, the army of the living God who you've defied. He could have knocked him down and killed him with a marshmallow. It wouldn't have mattered because he was obedient to God. God is not limited to our science. But it was a place, if I dare say, of commitment. It was a commitment when, and let's face it, when God actually tells you something and you're like, yeah, but it doesn't really make sense. And of course, one of the first verses we learn is to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. It's like Proverbs 3, 5, 4, 5, 5 and 6. And we get that and we go, wait a minute. If I'm going to trust in the Lord with all my heart, I can't lean upon my own understanding and trust him with all my heart. There's the problem. And it's like, I'll trust you as much as I understand you. Good luck with that because his ways are so far above our ways and the Lord loves doing things in a way that isn't scientific and doesn't make sense. That's going to raise the brow from the unbeliever friend who cares and is going to intervene and go, you know, this is really crazy. And you're like, yeah, so when it comes to pass, it'll be a miracle because we all want to see the miracle, but we don't want to be put in the place where we have to have one. You know, we just like, hey, God, just do a miracle that's sort of abundant and superfluous versus God, I need you to step in or I'm a dead man and go, that's exactly where I want you. Now when this happens, the unbeliever around you goes, that must be God, because clearly nobody else could have done that. He goes, where is it? And he goes, look at if you really want to, to get to that place where it's like, God, you are just overflowing. You're going to have to trust me, and I need a commitment that is a conviction beyond your understanding. Imagine if God just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I want you to circle Yeriko, and then I want you all to take your arrows and I want you to fire them at the same time. And as you fire them at the same time, I'm going to let those arrows hit the wall and pierce the wall. That would still be crazy. That would still be miraculous. Can we agree? But there would be some yutzes in this room that would be like, it's because I fired so hard. Let's just be honest. Think of the miracles God did that the first time you told someone it was completely you were the damsel in distress and God came in to save the day. And by the fourth time you told it, you were 80% of the way there and God stepped in for that last 20%. So God has to put us in a place often where there's no way we could figure out how to brag on it. I don't know, I marched around and I yelled and the wall fell down. That's because I really yelled. No one's going to buy it. He's like, you can stay here. And there will be people there as well going, you know, 
You could just stay here with us. With a group of people that say, we'll trust you as long as we understand you, God. It's good enough. Well, you know, there are all kinds of really cool people and we can study the lives of people we could envy because of their amazing faith. But now today, God works a lot more practically. Now, I'm not just telling you jump and wait for God to catch you because that is not faith. Faith is stepping out on the clear command of God. Peter did not say, I'm getting out on the water, catch me. He said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. And the Lord calls every one of us. He's like, look, if you hear me command, step and watch what happens. Do you, I mean, the, the real question is, do we want it? Do we really want to be in that place? where we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, and we walk in this inconquerable, more than a conqueror spirit and the victory that God intended, or do we want to live this convoluted, mamby-pamby, pseudo-spiritual, well, we're kind of just a little bit cooler than the dead people out there spiritually. Is that really what we want? I wonder why the people look and go, why would I want that? What do you have that we don't? And I guarantee you, us just sort of standing around and hooping and hollering is not going to make the difference compared to a group of people who walked in the victory of Christ and a world around us. And that takes us to our fourth step. Look at what starts with God going, I want your heart. You know, I've learned this. The term he gives us is repent, metanoecho. It literally means to change your mind. Like noia means thinking. Like when you're beside your thinking, you're paranoia. That's where we get the term from. It literally means your thinking is beside yourself. That's where we get the term from. Metanoia means to change your mind. And I've learned this. If you're willing to change your mind, God's willing to change your heart. And he'll take that rocky, stony heart and he'll replace it with a soft and gentle, fleshy one. Not flesh like carnal, flesh like tender. But once that happens, he goes, now that I have your heart, I want you in a family because you're going to need to be safe. Does that mean you might not get hurt? You might get hurt by people in the church? Yeah, you might be. But you're less likely to. And we grow together and we learn this. So we go from a place of consecration, Gilgal, to a place of communion, Betrel. And we go from Betrel to this place now in Jericho where it's a place of conviction. Am I really willing when I step out of this building to be the same person I am in here? Because it's a lot easier to be super Christian in this room than it is to walk out there. Let's just be honest. Because here, if I were to say, do you really believe God created everything? Yes is actually a much easier answer than it is out there. Do you really believe Jesus is the only way? Yeah, well, the only way to what? To the Father? Yes. The Father used Jesus to pay your bill. Didn't use anyone else. Why would you try to go another route? Well, let's get to the last of them and close this up. Fifty men, they're going to start telling you, you know what? No, but he's going to take us to the Jordan. This is our last place. And the Jordan is the place now, as we see here, of connection. It is the place where you have to do something so crazy that you have to actually take what you have and step with it. At the Jordan, by the way, and probably, and some of you are familiar, one of my favorite things about it, Dan means judgment. Jord means from. Imagine, when Daniel was born, his parents looked at each other and went, this is God's judgment. The northernmost area of Israel was actually not given to the tribe of Dan. Dan actually didn't like their property, so they went up there and killed a bunch of people and took their land. But it was the northern area, so they always say from Dan to Beersheba, which is the north to south. So Dan was the farther north, northernmost part. From there come three major tributaries. The Mount Hermon, the Chazbani, and Banias. Actually, it was Banias was Panias, but the traditional Arabic um, mouth does not actually say a P, so it says Banias, which sounds a lot like Banyos to me, which is a bathroom, but anyway. Um, but it was before that, it was called Kesarea Philippi. In scripture, that Banias, Panias place, dedicated to Pan, that's Panias, and the Banias, 
was called Caesarea Philippi, the place where Jesus actually looks and says, who do men say that I am? It's one of the places we visit in Israel. But those three natural springs, if you will, come down and those three major tributaries form the, the Sea of Galilee, which is still over 70% of the drinking water today in Israel. And then it goes south from there and between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan because it flows from Dan down to the Dead Sea. So it means the flow of judgment. And this man, not Moses, because he will die in Mount Nebo in the area of Jordan today, but a man named Yehoshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus is going to be the first to take them in. But he's actually not the one to lead the brigade. The priests are. The priest carrying the ark says, this is what you need to do. First of all, I want to wait until it's the least possible. So we're going to wait till the Jordan overflows its banks. So it's not like a little trickle here. It's at its worst and most dangerous. Undertoes abound, Lots of water rushing at a lot of time. Because it's this moment now that we're going to do this. This is what I want the priests to do. I want them to go, and according to Joshua 3.13, it says, I want you to go and I want you to take the sole of your foot and I want you to step. You're holding the ark. I want you to step. And don't worry. I'll take care of it. I'm going to actually stop the flow of judgment but I need you to, to stop to do it. Now, if anyone has ever been, any of you ever been in a flash flood? I have almost died in it. I was in a two by four. Do you know what that is? That's a lifted truck that looks like a four by four, but only has two wheel drive, which means that the back wheels are going to spin like crazy because there's no weight back there. It was during one of those massive El Nino's in California, and I got caught right in the middle of a flash flood that was taking me right into the Sacramento River. The truck was going, and just like the brilliant guy that I am, I just went into the thing like a Ford commercial, and then just stopped. And then I kind of opened my car door, and I heard my truck door, and I heard, that was the water, and I closed, I'm like, oh. I'm like, this could be it. And to me, it was never, I never had, this doesn't make any sense, I had no fear of death, but the dying part I was apprehensive of. I mean, I've had a few pains in my life that I lived through, and I thought this has to be more painful because you don't live through this one. That would, the, the process of getting there doesn't sound like a lot of fun. I'm like, all right, Lord, is this it? Is this the end of it? Is this it? And I'm not like, I just think I'm going to die all the time. Like, and I can see this. I realize if I wind up in that river, and I'm probably about 10 meters away, if I wind up in that river, this whole thing's going down. Well, all right, Lord, what do I do? The Lord goes, oh, why don't you try starting up your truck? Hadn't occurred to me. Yep. So I did, and it started, and I was like, yes. But I know that one step out of that truck, and I would have been pulled. And the reason I say that is, is that when you're at a place where the rivers are overflowing their banks, one step is inviting you to get swept away instantly. That takes a lot of faith. Will you actually trust that the word of God is as effective as he says it is? I'm going to say that again. You trust that the word of God is as effective as he says it is to the lost world out there. The gospel is still the power of salvation. The Holy Spirit is still the one who convicts. And we who plant in water are nothing. But it's the Lord who brings the increase. So we need to stop trying to win the argument and be the evidence. And preach the gospel. And let God's Holy Spirit do his work. Because his tools and his commandments haven't changed, and neither has the world. It looks nastier, it's just more obvious. He's making it easier for some of us who are thicker. He's like, you need a place now of connection where you take that faith of yours and you take my word and you start walking with it. Because if you really want me to empower you, I want to empower you to trust me to use these things the way I say because I'm going to do all the work and I want you to walk with me. Ultimately, the end result of that, <clears throat> there is 
a chariot of fire and horses of fire. Why horses of fire? Because if they were normal horses, they would have burned up by the chariot. So God takes that and he sweeps up Eliyahu. And by the way, for what it's worth, I challenge you, if you're a Bible student, look that Eliyahu, the first guy, is the prophet who hears. He, he is told by the word of God, go speak to Achav. He does. And then God says, get out. And he gets out. And then he goes, now go run to the brook. And he runs to the brook Besor. And he waits for it to dry up. And then he goes, now go to Zeratan and meet the prophet or meet the widow that's there. And he does. And then he goes, now let's do a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And he says, you know, everything that I've done, I've done at your word. Eliyahu was a prophet who heard. But Elishima was a prophet who saw. He was the one that when he started to follow Eliyahu, Eliyahu goes, okay, now that we've done our, our showdown on Mount Carmel, he puts his head between his knees, which means he's not going to see anything. This is Eliyahu. And he says, now, go look. Go look, Elishema. Go look. And he goes, I don't see anything. I don't see any clouds. Hasn't rained for three and a half years. Finally, he's like, all right. Look again. Look again. Seven times. And finally, he goes, well, there's this little cloud, but it's like the size of a guy's hand. He saw. And what we're going to find is with Elishema is that he's going to be a guy that sees. This won't be the last time he sees, by the way, the chariot of fire. He's going to have his own servant, a guy named Gahatsi, and he's like, they're kind of laying around surrounded by the enemy army. Assyrian is there surrounded by the enemy army. His servant is freaking out. Gahatsi's like, oh no, we're surrounded. And, 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 and Elishama goes, just open his eyes. And he opens his eyes and he's like, whoa, God's army surrounding. And it's all these chariots of fire. Like Eliyahu, he may have heard but Elishama sees, so he's like, well, then I want your eyes open. But we start by hearing, and then from hearing we do see, but we start by hearing. Look at First John chapter 1, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon in our hands have handled. Let's bring this to close. So he goes, hey, what about the Jordan? Will you stay there? No, I'm not staying there either. My eyes are on my master. And because my eyes are on my master, I am going to let him consecrate my heart. And then I'm going to let him put me in a place of communion with him and with others. And then I want to have him take me to this place of conviction now. And all of a sudden I discover I have convictions. Convictions that I'm going to take his word and trust it. And then from there I'm going to go to a place of connection where I'm going to start walking his word. And I want to walk his word. And he goes, that's all I know. Keep your eyes open because I'm going to empower you. By the time it's done, even after all of that, there are people that are like the, the goofiest thing. They're like, well, I think he's gone. Well, you know, well, I just watched him leave. Remember, I get the idea. That was probably one of the reasons why Yahoo was like, keep your eyes on me. Because people are going to be like, no, 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 he hasn't really left. The Holy Spirit just picked him up and just dropped him somewhere. Like that makes any sense at all. But that was the rumor. Remember when Eliyahu showed up to Obadiah, the, the servant of King Ahab, and he's like, well, I know what's going to happen. You're going to say you're here. But then the Holy Spirit is going to pick you up and put you somewhere else because Ahab had been trying to hunt him down like Jason Bourne, and he couldn't find him. So their assumption was that they'd get close, and then the Holy Spirit would go, ha-ha, and he'd just pick him up and put him somewhere else. And this is what will happen in your life. Even people who are God's people will be like, you know what? Yeah, it's not really like that. It's like actually, interesting, Jesus said, you'll know that I've gone to the Father because when I go to the Father, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. I do love that. And they're like, well, he's kind of, no, he's not kind of, he is. He's at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for me and he's interceding for you if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ. But why do you want God's power? What do you want it for? To be cool? To be powerful? Or to be used? Because God has an amazing calling on Elishema's life, and he's going to empower him for it. And he's got an amazing calling on your life, and he wants to empower you for it. As we go to prayer now, I just want to ask you, first of all, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and mine, your shame and mine, your guilt and mine, paid in full tetelestai, so that you don't have to pay the bill because he already has. And just as he has, he rose again on the third day and offers you a brand new life. The old one, gone. And the new one, under his power and lordship. Have you accepted that gift? If you haven't, I'm going to give you that choice. But if you have... God's plan is not now just going, well, now that you're mine, just sit tight and wait until either I come back or you just die and go to heaven. He's like, I have a purpose now to use you to bless the family so that every person will be like, I'm so glad you're his because I'm so glad you're part of this family. And for the world to be reached, but first here.
And he wants to empower you to do that so you don't even have to do that in your own strength. So if you haven't accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm going to give you that choice. But if you have, which one of these places are you at? Are you at that place where, God, you could have some of my heart, but not all of it? Well, then we need to leave Gilgal, don't we? Well, okay, I'll kind of pop in and out of places. I'm not telling you you need to commit to this fellowship. I'm telling you you need to commit to a fellowship, a place where you can be available and be used. And if you're like, no, well, then look, it's time to move beyond Bethel. And then we get to that place where you realize, okay, okay, um, the consecration, I see the communion, and now I realize, okay, now I need conviction. A place where I'm going to actually trust your word. I'm not going to just try to use the world's methods. I want to use yours, Lord. And it's time to leave Yerko. And from that, when God stopped the flow of Yordan, by the way, it tells us he stopped it according to Joshua 3. At Adam, beside Zeratan. Now, that may mean nothing to you, but Adam means a man, and Zeratan means their distress. Joshua, the name for Jesus, stopped the flow of judgment at a man beside their distress. Do you think God was telling us something? And this is the place that Eliyahu leads Elishama so that he can walk through the Jordan himself. And every one of us needs to walk through that Jordan ourselves. So we'd say, you know what? This is going to be my walk now. Because that's the place of fruitfulness and abundance. And that's the plan he has for us. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so, so much for this beautiful text. I thank you so much that your plan for us isn't just so that we could be not going to hell. But rather for you to save us, adopt us, fortify us, enrich us, gift us, and use us. That we could be a contributive member of the family. But for that to happen, Lord, we recognize that that we are kind of raised in this mindset that it's all about us. And you move our minds out of the us, the individual, and show us the beauty of a family. And just like any family, it's got its quirks, it's got its dysfunctions, but in the end of all, none of it that's dysfunctional is because of you. It's because of what we try to bring in. But tonight, here in this room, I just want to thank you for the way that you have spoken and challenged us to get up from our Gilgal. And I pray that there be no person here that actually dies at Gilgal that says, you know what? Yeah, you can save me, but you really can't have this heart. Because in the end of it all, you've never said whoever confesses you as Savior, but rather as Lord. And as you move us from this place of consecration and our hearts become tender and exposed to you, you plant us in a fellowship where we can be enriched and blessed and invested in it and then see the beauty in being in and invest through ourselves. You bring us to your house. When you bring us to your house, we start to see the bespoke beauty of the things that you consecrate in our own hearts individually that are our own convictions. But for each of us, that we grab a hold of your word and we trust you in it as you develop us to become servants. And ultimately, you take us from Yeriko to the Jordan. And there, you show us what it's like to really connect that to ministry. To see you use us. So tonight, in this room right now, if there be any within the sound of this voice who have not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I'm not here to, to embarrass you. I'm here to say, why in the world would you say no to Jesus' gift? Why would you want to pay a bill that Jesus already has? And so if that's you tonight, just pray this prayer. Right where you're at, right where I'm at, just pray this prayer right now. God, I am guilty before you. I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not perfect. I've done wrong, thought wrong, felt wrong, intended wrong. And you know all of that. But because of your great love for me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. And when he died on the cross for me, my bill was paid in full. He paid for the crimes that I committed with me in his heart. 
And just like scripture promised, he not only died and was buried, but on the third day rose again to offer me a new life. Now, no longer under that tyranny of sin. But he demands to be the architect of my reinvention. And I say, yes. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. Jesus, if you really want to wash me clean and make me right with you and make me right with the Father through what you've done, then I'd be crazy to say no. So I say yes. Show me how to follow you now as I hand my life to you. Make it right. Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. And Lord, I pray for every believer in here, myself included, Lord, don't let us stop at Gilgal. Don't let us stop at Bethel. Don't let us stop at Jericho. Don't let us stop at the Jordan. But rather, God, lead us to this place of abundance and overflow where we go from being saved to set apart and sanctified to trusting you as a God who's perfectly smart and sovereign to the place of being a servant. Use us in this family. Plug us in to you first and then each other. And as we walk and our feet hit the water, it's your job to part it. Show us, Lord, our own personal walk into that place of fruitfulness and abundance as we hand our lives to you and say, Lord, now pour forth your spirit upon us and use us. In Jesus' name.